And may he, may he bless us as we open his word and take a little time here and try and understand a significant portion of scripture. For four chapters, we've been looking at the comparison between the earthly tabernacle with an earthly priesthood and earthly sacrifices and a heavenly tabernacle, the real tabernacle made without hands with the ultimate sacrifice. And as for four chapters, you just get the impression that the writer to the book of Hebrews wants us to get this. It's that he's tackled it from so many different directions and repeated himself and woven back and forth so that by the time we're done, if we've paid some just, just thoughtful care to what has been written, we understand some very significant truths. And from, we've said this before, the last part of chapter 6 to the first half of chapter 10, four solid chapters, purely doctrinal teaching about the distinction between the earthly and the heavenly. And he finishes the discussion with a final statement. We are going to be there today now, contrasting the effectiveness of the two Systems. And I want to begin by reading in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered... For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. This last bit of discussion and this contrast between the two, the writer sets up Two specific things that he says, here are some things where the old system just could not pull it off. First of all, we see in verse 1, it couldn't make the worshipers perfect. Those who brought the sacrifices were not made perfect through those sacrifices. And in verse 4, he then also says that those sacrifices, it's not possible for them to take away sin. So these these are things about that whole system that was yet ineffective. Now think about this. For all those centuries, and we're talking 14 plus centuries, it was only a shadow of what Christ would do. That's the word that is given here. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come. It was this, this shadow. And think about, what, what does a shadow have an effect? It does. You get in the shade, it's a little cooler. A shade can give you the outline of whatever it is that is being shaded. There is an effect, but it's a limited effect. If I want to get away from the 30 below winters up here, if I want to get out of the rain that was falling this past week, and I don't go stand in the shadow, i got to get inside the building. That is creating the shadow. So it has an effect, but it's limited. The other thing that we need to remind ourselves is that this was telling a story. It was telling the story as we looked at the tabernacle. It was telling the story that the way back to God has not been made complete yet. 
The way back to God has not yet where it needs to be. So those priests could come in only so far, and then there's the veil, and God said, I'll meet you over here. Actually, that's east. Okay, I'll do it this way. So they could only come in so far, and God said, I'll meet you here, but there was this veil that stopped them. And they would come in this is as far as they could go because the way past the veil had not yet been made. And Hebrews earlier had said that this was a parable as to the way the redemptive work was at that point. So untold thousands upon thousands of sacrifices were made, yet their need was not met. They could not be made perfect, and these sacrifices couldn't take away sin. But when Christ came, he gave himself as the, what I'm calling the ultimate offering. Picking up and continuing on in verse 5, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Those old offerings, as we contrast the two, they couldn't take away sin. They were merely a covering until... There's always this time element as we go through these immediate chapters until Christ came. And as such, that's why they were simply that shadow. And the incarnation, did you catch that when he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me? That's the incarnation. That is that place where the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh in order to live a perfect sinless life that he might become the perfect sacrifice that actually could effectively deal with the problem of sin that the previous sacrifices could only cover, could only kind of give an anticipation as the shadow of what was actually coming. And as such, when the body of Christ was offered on that cross of Calvary, it was the ultimate Offering, following those thousands upon thousands through the century. And in obedience to God's will, Christ allowed his body to be broken on our behalf. And verse 10 says, By that offering, by the offering of the body of Jesus, we have been sanctified. It actually affected something, it sets us apart. It puts us in a place where God can work, is working, will continue to work in our lives. But we now have something where we are part of this eternal redemptive work that he is doing in a new way. That's why we call it the ultimate offering. And through his ultimate offering, there's two things. And this is where you fill in your notes if you're the note fillers. Through Christ's ultimate offering, he perfects the saints and 
He forgets their sins. He perfects the saints and he forgets their sins. Continuing on with verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Did you pick up the contrasts that the writer is setting up for us? In verses 11 and 12, we see this idea that the previous priests of the previous system, they stood and continually offered. They were always standing. They stood today to make offerings. They stood tomorrow to make offerings. And they stood the next day and the next day and the next day. And they had been standing for quite some time. And they just kept repeating this. And he makes this clear distinction that for this multitude of offerings, as they were standing to make these offerings, when Christ came, he made one offering and sat down. When he sat down, what's indicative? The work is done. It's finished. That other system never got finished because in itself it couldn't affect anything. It could only cover until that one perfect ultimate offering of Jesus Christ offered once, not in the tabernacle made with hands as we have seen, but in the heavenly tabernacle made without hands. Before the Father, he offered himself and then sat down. We're going to hear a little bit more about that because it's very significant. But for today, we're going to keep moving. And you notice the very specific thing that is said because it said, the writer set this up in in, in verse 1. In verse 1 it said, The law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of things, can never with these same sacrifices, can never, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect or complete, can restore to, to restore to them and restore in them and restore them back to the place where that image of God which had been marred, where, that, where, the, where the carnal nature is there constantly wanting to live in rebellion to God, where that has been erased, it could never tend to those things. But in verse 14, it says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Colossians says that we are complete in him. It's the same word. The same word is the idea of things being put back in order, of this finished work whereby the image of God is restored to us, that we might be, as Romans 8.29 says, you know, remade in his image. So he has perfected forever, which those other sacrifices couldn't do. He perfects the saints and... He forgets their sins. Verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnessed to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. 
Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sins. He forgets their sins. Notice verse 17. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. As opposed to what he set up in the contrast in those first verses. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. See, the whole system, that whole old system, part of what it accomplished was to remind those who brought their offerings and to remind people on the Day of Atonement, you still got a problem. It not only did not forget the sin, it actually went the other direction and reminded them sin is still an issue. It's being covered, and that's what you've heard of, you know, the Day of Atonement. It's also referred to as Yom Kippur. Literally, the day of covering. It has just been covered, but it hasn't been dealt with fully. And so, we have this idea that once Christ came and offered the ultimate offering, God says, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. There is no more this remembering of sins, which in those early verses, he said, look, if there was, if there was no more, if, if these early sacrifices were effective, and they really took away sin, there'd be no more consciousness of sins and no remembering of it. But there is a remembering of it. In fact, it's there to remind us of it. But now, in Christ, the ultimate offering, God says, I'm not going to remember your sins anymore. And then verse 18, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin, which is why Christ sat down. down. Remission. Another word for it is forgiveness. But what I think is interesting in the concept of this particular word in the use of remission is the idea of forgiveness has this idea of releasing or carrying away. The sins are carried away. They're taken away. They're gone, which is why they're not going to be remembered anymore. And in the Old Testament, under the old system, this was typified in that when the high priest on the Day of Atonement, there would be two goats that were brought before the tabernacle. And one of them, he would put his hands on it, one, and it would be sacrificed. It would be killed. And that indicated Christ's death on our behalf, where the, the laying of the hands and the confessing the sins of the people on this Day of Atonement over this, over this, uh, over this goat, uh, it's like placing the people's sins on there, it's killed. The other goat places the sins, confesses the people's sins on it, but it is left alive and let out into the wilderness, and it goes off on its own. And it is known as the goat of escape or the scapegoat. You ever think about that word? You've heard the term somebody who's a scapegoat, right? They got, they, they're the ones who got the, the burden of whatever it was placed upon them, and they got blamed for everything and was all put on them. That's the scapegoat. That phrase comes. That word comes all the way back in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic system, where there was this goat that was released, but the sins were carried away. They are forgotten. They are released. They are forgiven through the death pictured in the other one. Is that not a magnificent picture of what God does with our sins, of what Christ has done? So it gives added understanding when we realize what that word means to verse 4. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. That was purely symbolic. But God says that when Christ died, 
in the ultimate offering, this body that was prepared for him. He took on flesh specifically in order to become this offering that now the sins can be taken away and they're released from us and he will remember them no more. And in their place, in the place of all of that brokenness, he's going to put in within our hearts, put his law into our hearts so that now we are going to, out of this new place, this place where we are complete, this place where we're remade in the image of Christ, this place where we have been sanctified, set apart, we are going to, out of that, actually and normally do God's will in God's work. And that's why we want to continually yield ourselves to God's redeeming and and transforming work in our lives. That more and more and more Christ in us, the hope of glory is being expressed because it's just who we are now. And it's just what God is doing in us. Four chapters. The writer to Hebrews has gone over, and and at times I've almost been a little embarrassed because probably some of you are going, haven't we been here before? Well, not in the specific verses because we've moved through each time, but again, weaves it back and forth, hits it from different angles. Why? It's absolutely necessary we get this. Can you see that, depending on where he's going from here? But what I'd like us to do is just to, for one brief moment, review God's redemptive scope as we see here. Because just in looking at these verses, you see there's this constant play of time. This is what was, this is what is now. There's this play of place. This was the earthly tabernacle, this is the heavenly tabernacle. There's this perspective of offerings. These are just blood of bulls and goats. This is the body of Christ. There's this play back and forth. Even all of that fits into a longer, a longer redemptive work that we ought to understand. We ought to at least have a rough idea what that is. And so if you'll give me just this minute, I'd like to review something for us. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were told, you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Evil one came along and said, oh yes, you can. God knows, he's he's just keeping something from you. He knows that you'll be his gods, knowing good and evil. They go, oh, well, that sounds pretty good. I'd like to be a god, knowing good and evil for myself. So they eat of of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, find out he was lying to them. They added nothing. They really did die. Spiritual death came upon them, later physical death, and the entire system now is in darkness. But God promised right then that there would be one who would come who would crush the head of the serpent and he would destroy the work of the evil one. He was going to come at some time. In the process, he would take a striking to his heel. It would not be fatal, but he would suffer something. And the plan of redemption begins to unfold. You get to Noah, and we get a picture of redemption where God's judgment comes in the flood, and yet there is safety within the ark. Those who will will step into God's redemptive place, and the flood of judgment happens around them, but they're not touched by it. And those who are in Christ will not be touched when God's ultimate judgment comes. And then God calls out one man by the name of Abraham. And he tells him that he's going to make of him a great nation. And he tells him that he's going to give him his own land. And he tells him that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And what he has just said to him is, Abraham, this one that I promised back in Genesis 3, he's going to come out of this great nation that I'm going to make of you. Somewhere out of that nation is going to come this one who's going to fulfill what I said way back there about crushing the head of the serpent. 
And so we watch and we understand God being at work among the descendants of Abraham. And soon, as the Genesis goes along, pretty soon they're, 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 they're in, uh, down in Egypt waiting out of famine. But 400 years pass, and what happens? They've been put into slavery because God's blessing them so much. Pharaoh says, we can't have this many foreigners in our land. And so he puts them into slavery. At which point God says, it's time. He raises up Moses to bring them out of slavery. And as they come out of slavery, he takes them to Mount Sinai and he gives them the pattern for the tabernacle. And he says, now build it exactly as I am showing it to you because I'm giving you a pattern of what is in heaven. Build it exactly as I'm showing it to you. And he gave them all sorts of rules and regulations and how, which we've been talking about for four chapters, how the priests were to carry out their work within this tabernacle. So they make the tabernacle, they carry it into the land of Israel. About five centuries later, they decide Solomon, David first wants to, Solomon then is going to, they build a permanent structure to house this ark. Because God said, I'll meet you right there on that mercy seat. I will meet you there. So year after year after year, these priests are offering all these sacrifices, standing to offer thousands upon thousands of sacrifices. Once a year, they go in to the Holy of Holies, place the blood, the high priest does, places the blood upon the mercy seat. God says, you're covered for another year. Not taken away. Not forgotten. In fact, you're reminded. And then comes Christmas. When God speaks to a young woman, a virgin, probably a teenager, and he says, through the angel, blessed are you among women. You will bear a son. She's like, how can that be? I haven't known a man. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. So this all happens. She has this child. The angels of heaven rejoice. The shepherds come. She's also told by the prophet who comes that a sword is going to pierce your heart also because of this baby. And she will watch. 30 years later, she will watch as this virgin-born son hangs on a cruel Roman cross. And he hangs there because he is bearing the sins of all of us. It looks like the end of the story to his followers. Three days later, when they go back to try and properly finish embalming the body, they find out it's gone. And he has risen, just as he said. And now this whole new joy breaks out. And he commissions his followers to go into all the world. They will be his witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the earth to tell this one redemptive story. That story has been unfolding literally for millennia. We can see it in the scriptures. But now the story goes out that the ultimate offering has been made. And and sin, sin is forgotten. And those who are sanctified are being perfected. That's the story they carry. Notice this, friends. 
for all those years when the offerings were being made, they were looking forward to something. They had the shadow of what it was they were looking forward to. They were looking forward to the ultimate offering of Jesus Christ. After that, he instituted, or the night of it, he instituted what? The Lord's table. We look back to it in this economy. We look back to the same offering. But you get the point? If this is the offering, all of those sacrifices looked forward to it. Here's the offering, the Lord's table. We look back to it. Where does that leave us? There is but one offering for the problem of sin. It is in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. And there is nothing else, nothing else, nothing else revealed to us that could begin to deal with the problem of our sin. Which is why we say there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Old Testament saints, even before Christ came, were going to be redeemed because of what he did. We as New Testament saints are being redeemed because of what he did. And that is why not only not only do we not veer regardless of the cost and it's going to cost us more and more in the days ahead because this reality is not embraced by a world in darkness. We will not change this message. It is the only eternal message of hope. That's number one. The second thing is, that is why, as Heather mentioned, this one woman who has begun this ministry in India, she said she has sacrificed and sacrificed. During the time when you people were so generous with things you brought for the sale, the team is trying to get the sale set out, and there was a ton of work to do for that. And somebody said, who does this, really? I mean, who would do this? Why are we going through so much work in order to raise some funds so that we can go do more work? Because there's a sacrifice to be there, and we were physically exhausted getting ready for the sale. Who would do this? People redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ who understand there's an eternal message here that must go out. And God has called them, whether it's Heather going to India, whether it's this team of eight with Dylan going early and the rest of us will catch up, or whether it's the career missionaries who are there now, whether it's Dustin and Katja at Cooperstown right now, whether it's a Mike Adamick who's been given a ministry of preaching in pulpits around this area that is just truly amazing to watch. Whether it's parents someday down the line when these little ones who've gone out for children's church, God one day calls your child and says, I'd like you to be serving in this place or that place. And we give them up and say, yes, Lord. We do this because we understand there is but one hope for a world in darkness. And it's found in Jesus Christ. And no sacrifice is too great to make him known. The ultimate offering 
a body you have prepared for me. By the offering of his body, we're being sanctified, made perfect. That's a magnificent truth. Do you know him personally? Are you part of that redemptive work which he is doing that you can honestly say, yes, I have put my faith in Jesus Christ. He is the center of all redemptive history. He's the only hope God has made available. And yes, I put my faith in him. I trust, friends, you will not leave today if you cannot answer that affirmatively. Father, thank you for this magnificent message. Thank you for those whom you are sanctifying, perfecting, for sins that have been forgotten. Thank you, Lord that you have given us something of eternal value to which nothing can compare. Give us hearts responsive, both personally for our needs in our own life, for you to redeem us, for you to transform us into Christ's likeness. And then, Father, give us hearts, hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone, whereby you can mold them and shape them, that we will be responsive to your call upon our lives, whether it is to another another field, to another country, or, Father, just how to live out Christ-likeness and be a light right where we are at here in northwest Minnesota. Change us, Father. Conform us to this magnificent truth, we ask in Christ's precious name.